to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. I'm proud to announce the sponsor of this week's podcast, Cleovana. Cleovana is a novel gynecologic treatment that increases arousal and sensitivity in the vaginal area by using sound waves to increase vascularity and innervation of the vulvar area. This simple, non-invasive treatment involves no lasers, scalpels, needles, and importantly, no downtime off from your busy life. To learn more about this procedure or to request a consultation with one of their certified and skilled clinicians, please visit cleovana.com. That's spelled C-L-I-O-V-A-N-A.com. Thank you, Cleovana, for sponsoring this week's podcast. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning back in. And I have my really good friend today, so I'm like very giddy. Um, and of course, as many of you know, I just, this is a great podcast because I get to interview my friends all the time. So welcome to the show, Dr. Alexa Mira, who uh, worked with me when I lived in Columbus. She's an assistant professor of rheumatology at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center and just a fantastic, awesome, wonderful human. So I'm so excited to really just do a broad conversation and frank conversation about women and rheumatologic conditions. Well, thank you, Heather. So excited to be here. Um, unfortunately, I'm giddy too. So I think as two of us extroverts, we play <laughs> off each other. So apologize for those if we move at a pace or finish each other's sentences and that becomes annoying. Um, but no, but really, really excited to be here and really, really excited to talk about some of these important issues as women, you know, all people age and, you know, and then have joint pain. And then the question is, you know, what's in the purview of an actual autoimmune disease versus, you know, more kind of, we think of it mechanical or kind of joint pain that happens in later life. Yeah. I think this is a great topic just to kind of just talk people through what are the most common rheumatologic conditions. Why are they so common in women? What are some of the clinical things or signs that people might see? So let's kind of dig into that. I definitely feel like this is a a Monday where we're seeing patients together back in the day and sitting in that cubby and, and jabbing in between patients. But so anyways, Stay. You are not six feet apart then. No. <laughs> you can't six, six, six feet apart there. I, um, but yeah. <laughs> but totally agree. Um, I, so that's a really loaded question. And so I guess I'll, ask, I'll answer it in, in a couple ways. So I think in general, autoimmune disease happens in a, in a, there are some subsets that happen more than men, but most often it happens with women and there is an estrogen component. Um, do we really understand that? No. So if I, you know, you are listening and that is an area of passion. If you figure that out, I'm pretty sure there's a Nobel prize coming down your future. If you could figure out why only women, um, but there has been studies back in the day, you know, with mice that if you eliminated all estrogen, that they never, ever, um, ever develop lupus. Like if you just kind of, they never end, you know, from day one, but if you introduce estrogen and I don't remember the exact study and I don't remember exactly when, but he introduced it kind of midlife or something in like the teenage kind of puberty, like kind of thing that they still can develop lupus. So there is clearly an estrogen component, but we don't really have an understanding of, of how and why and, and whatnot that kind of matters. So, so it is our lot in life and women. 
Um, but you know, if you think about it with women, we, all, we have to have some sort of immune special way because we have babies or we are, we are allowed to have babies. Not all women have to have babies, totally fine, no judgment there. But right, a baby basically is a foreign body. It really is essentially a parasite, no offense. Again, I have three of my own, so I feel like I can say that. Um, and you have to be able to tolerate that being to grow in your body and not destroy it. Right. And so women's immune system is a unique setting that's different than men because they don't have to do those things. So, um, there's something probably to that, that we've never quite understood, but it, it follows suit that it, it, that women's immune tolerance is different than of men's. And that maybe that tolerance is what allows some sort of autoimmunity to happen. It's almost like it, Malaria. There's some protective. Isn't something protective about sickle malaria? Cell. Sickle cell. So yes. Sickle cell. Right. So the genetic component of sickle cell. Right. And so, right. So this the body happens to do something. Right. So for naturally to have a foreign body that grows in nine months and you do not destroy it and it comes out in this miracle of a child, you know your body has to have a different immune system. That's often why immune uh, diseases actually happen post baby. People that you know the classic time to develop rheumatoid arthritis is postpartum. Is it? Yeah. So it, it is one of the classic times. So you have a different immune system essentially post a baby. Now, um, I could probably say the same thing if you're post chemotherapy or a bone marrow transplant, right? So you have, but to the extent of what that difference is, I think is really hard to quantify and qualify. So if you put me on the stand right now and, you know, from a lawyer, I don't know that I'd be able to give you the exact percentages, but it's clearly different than it was before. And I think every woman that has had a child will say, the body is just different. It's hard to quantify. Hair may be different. The way their body is different. The way they may have a new allergic reaction to things. You know, I can say I my am, almost got worse every time. Oh my gosh. I'm so carsick all the time after my very first kid. And my husband and I, he's like, you know, I hate driving you around. I sometimes make myself carsick driving. <laughs> That is terrible. Well, right. So, right. But we don't have an understanding, right? And so, where that is in the quantification, is it just epigenetics and the idea of as genet as you are born, your genetics can be. Um, so, epigenetics is you don't alter the genetics, but you alter the way the genetics is interpreted in human life. So, we, we don't have any understanding of any of that, of how that works. But it clearly shows that as every woman that's been pregnant, whether you're pregnant or even have a baby, just even pregnant, your bit, your body is somewhat different to have that and to keep that there. And so to understand that. So it's not shocking that women are more prone to autoimmune diseases and they often happen after a childbirth experience. So, and they're often better during childbirth because it's like your hormones are stable. Ah, that's right. So what are the most common rheumatologic conditions or what are the, t- you know, what are the, what are the common ones? So osteoarthritis is the number one, which is not the autoimmune disease, right? So the wear and tear of joint pain, most common things, literally every single person in the world will have it. It causes the most mortality and morbidity in the sense of it most affects your function. And it's the number one reason why people get joint replacements. Um, so there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of doctors involved. There's a lot of different reasons and, and functions to be involved. And we, and we can talk about that. Um, but that doesn't really matter autoimmune wise. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is one of the most common, which is the idea of, you know, both sides of your body having, um, joint pain and swelling in your fingers, toes, knees, wrists, um, lasting over more than six weeks and has swelling that incorporates this idea of morning stiffness. So the idea that in the mornings, it is really hard to move things that a uh, common complaint is I'm 40, but I feel like I'm 80 in the morning. And then by the end of the day, I'm totally fine. 
uh, you know, another really common um, autoimmune disease is polymaldrumatica that happens in women often over than 50. It doesn't happen under women younger than 50. It is often occupied by this girdle pain and the idea of shoulder and hip pain and muscle weakness a little bit and a lot of morning stiffness too. So I'm getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and at 4 a.m. I cannot move and I am shuffling to the bathroom. But at 4 p.m., I'm totally fine. I'm trying to find the reasons for those. And, you know, it's hard. All my patients sit in my office and go, well, why me? And I go, unfortunately, it's the right environmental stimulus with the right genetic host. And, you know, the environmental stimulus could be a virus. It could be something you ate. It could be something you were exposed to. We have no understanding of that. So those kind of things. And then the rarer ones, you know, are the more connective tissue diseases like lupus, Sjogren's, mixed connective tissue, dermatomyositis, vasculitis. So there's a lot that we can talk about and do in different things in there, but it's different. Yeah. So how do you go about differentiating rheumatoid arthritis from osteoarthritis? Um, Okay. So I think that's a really, really important aspect of understanding rheumatoid arthritis versus osteoarthritis because everyone will have osteoarthritis. You and I are going to have osteoarthritis no matter what as we get older. And I can already feel it. I know. The interesting thing about osteoarthritis is it, how we quantify it right now is over x-ray. And if you walk into the office and get an x-ray with osteoarthritis, say, let's say knee, knee pain, knee pain, very pretty classic women, men, everyone. And you have a really bad x-ray. Um, so some people with a really bad knee x-ray that shows bone on bone, you've just kind of lost that cartilage or that bouncy spongy thing that allows your, our joints to kind of just be squishy and move easily without pain, your bone and bone that causes pain. Some people are bone and bone, have no pain, but have some limited function, but have no pain. Some people have very minimal change in their x-rays and have a significant amount of pain and a significant loss of function. And we have zero understanding, quantification of how to, how to do that. All we know is there is something that happens, whether it's um, overuse, whether you, know, you are an athlete as a child or a D1 athlete or a, still an athlete to this day. Um, trauma at some point, had a car accident, had an injury for whatever reason, had rheumatoid arthritis, had an infection, um, were overweight, and that specific joint has just kind of had the brunt of that. It doesn't matter what the onset is. It all ends up looking the same, which is a really interesting thing because most diseases don't start like that, right? Most diseases, it, you have an onset, and then you have something else, and then it kind of follows a path where all, all of this is like a funnel towards joint pain and a knee replacement. And so Osteoarthritis classically, you know, in this sense, and every person is different and that's what makes medicine unique, is that it usually gets worse with exercise, um, right? So the more you use it, the worse it gets, or a repetitive movement. And you, you may have some morning pain um, or stiffness, but it's usually not lasting all day. And, and, and I can tell you those patients with rheumatoid arthritis that truly have an inflammatory arthritis, and then I make get I, I may not make they take their medicines, they get their inflammation under control. I just kind of guide them there, um, and it goes away. What's left sometimes is osteoarthritis pain, and they're much better at describing the differences I think than I am as someone that doesn't have both. Whereas rheumatoid arthritis pain is is different. It's a deeper pain. It includes more, it gets actually, it's better with exercise. So like the more you lubricate the joint in the sense or move it around, it gets better. The mornings are really hard. Again, they're this idea of stiffness and stiffness is a really hard thing to measure, to quantify and explain. It's this feeling of unable to move. Like if it's in your hands, unable to close the fist, unable to grip things. 
Um, but you know you can, and you know you have this strength, and you should be able to. So it's kind of different if you had um, a knee that has surgery and you can't bend it the same way. It's a different feeling. And so um, it makes it unique in those things. And you can have equally have both. And, and But the treatments are very different, right? So for rheumatoid arthritis, we are attempting to make the inflammation go away and therefore present, prevent the joint destruction. And in osteoarthritis, there's very minimal inflammation. And what we're trying to do is maximize function. So strengthening the joints and the tendons and the muscles and the ligaments and the correct joint alignment. So if you were someone who was super loosey-goosey and, and uh, very, very flexible, so over time you have joint trauma and now you have onset of, you know, you're in my office at 40 with osteoarthritis and you're like, I don't understand why my joints look like a 70-year-old. And you're like, unfortunately, when we were little, we put our heads, you know, our, our feet above our heads and, you know, show them all the cool things we can do in flexible that actually caused trauma to your joint. And you didn't know when you were five and 10. And so that's why you're sitting here now. And so it's really about strengthening those muscles and tendons and, and kind of keeping the pain away and strengthening and then trying to support those muscles and tendons and all the other muscles and tendons and joints to prevent a joint replacement or have a joint replacement when it's really needed um, in that kind of sense. Mm-hmm. But those are kind of those kind of things. Yeah. So I hear you talk a lot about how to sort of separate the two diagnoses based on like what the patient's saying, what they're experiencing, how they're experiencing the pain. And that's really helpful because a lot of people certainly do wonder what is there any diagnostic way or lab way to tell if there's a difference? So I the history and physical exam is by far the most important. Blood work can be helpful. So there are things called the rheumatic factor RF or the anti-CCP antibody, which is the anti-citric um, citrullinated protein. So that's why we say CCP because trying to say that three times fast is really impossible. No, thanks. Um, and they are associated. But so you could have osteoarthritis though and have those antibodies be positive, but that doesn't mean you have, the, you have rheumatoid arthritis. And so I think that's where that gets really confusing in my world. An ANA is a perfect example for anyone out there that's had an ANA that's positive or an anti-nuclear antibody, and they were told that they have lupus or not have lupus. Again, I'm not trying to say anyone's diagnosis out there that's listening is wrong, but often what happens in my office is someone is coming to sit there and they are told they have lupus because they have this antibody that's positive. You know, so how I think about these diseases is you have these symptoms together with this story. And then the antibodies just prove to me that you actually have that disease. The antibody itself means nothing without the right symptoms because the antibody is not causal. It's often correlated. And so they are associated with these disease, but they don't cause those disease necessarily. And so you may have an antibody for various reasons. Maybe that was the antibody that you were born with, maybe a recent infection. For whatever reason you have those antibodies, may have actually nothing to do with the reason that your complaints are that you're sitting in my office. And I think that gets really muddled in the commercials, in the literature, in the news, and all of the different things. And so I think that can be very confusing. That, and I think a lot of other medicine works the opposite way right? You're told you have diabetes because your lab work is up, not the other way around. And so I think most, this is the unique set about rheumatology is it doesn't follow the same patterns. You're told you have a heart attack because your troponin is elevated and therefore you need these tests where it's the opposite. I hear a story and then the labs just help guide me in terms of treatments and options and how, what I think your disease is going to go, which is very different 
than the other way around, that the lab tells me to dictate stuff. Yeah. You know, that's a great point. And I think that my listeners are really proactive and they love to sort of hear these facts and know that as opposed to it being discouraging, although it it certainly can be. But similarly, in my line of work, I'm thinking about the person's story and I'm using hormones like an FSH or an estradiol or this or that as like data points, but that's not going to tell me the full thing without the story. So I think that we sort of function as physicians in a similar matter of uh, the journey is the clinical history. What you tell me is like 90% of what I really need to know. Right. And it doesn't discount that the patient may be feeling bad in my office, right? I'm not trying to discount how they're feeling or their pain or their fatigue. I a hundred percent believe that is real. I a thousand percent believe it is real. The answer to their pain and fatigue answers though may not be in the treatments for rheumatoid arthritis. And I think that's where that disconnect also gets, right? You see a commercial, you read something and you're like, well, I have those symptoms. My joints hurt. I feel tired. Like I want to fix this with Humira. And I, and I go, okay, but I don't think it's going to work for you. And these are the reasons why, because, you know, and every drug we give has side effects, right? And unfortunately for a lot of the rheumatic drugs, they have scarier side effects than most. Not that they're not safe and not that I have thousands and millions of patients that have been on these drugs, but they have to be monitored. And so giving them willy-nilly without the right evidence puts people more at risk, right? So if you don't need to be immunosuppressed, then I've just added more risk to something, particularly now in COVID time, that's a whole Pandora's box, mm-hmm. um, right? That I don't have to do if, you know, if I don't want to. And, and so I may be causing more harm than good by giving you a medicine that I, you know, because it doesn't quite fit your symptoms. Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's where it gets really complicated. Cause again, I think it's not that any, you know, as a rheumatology that we're dismissing a patient's thought process or your thought process on your pain and fatigue, it just may not be that. And that I think when I say as physicians, I think sometimes we can be better at trying to have that conversation um, versus just going, you don't have this disease, right? So I, I will own that. I think I'm sure I've said that at some point because I think that misses the point of why the patient is sitting in the office. Um, just because it's not that disease doesn't mean something else is not going on. And then how do we address those issues? Yeah. So do you end up addressing a lot of osteoarthritis, even though you're a rheumatologist? I can't tell you how many women <laughs> over the age of 45 that come to my office with joint pain and fatigue. Yeah. And they may have an ANA that's positive and they're like, I have an autoimmune disease. And to be honest, some of them do. And some of them actually are just kind of heading in to menopause or they're perimenopausal and their fatigue is worse and their joint pain is worse. Mm-hmm. And they are not able to function like they used to be. And, you know, at this day and age with people living longer, I have a lot of really functional, amazing 60 year women that want to do everything that they did as 30. And it's just not the same. And I don't know, I don't know, even know how to have that conversation perfectly. Um, As I get older, it is easier for me to understand. Um, But I do, I think that's why you have this podcast also, because I think we're missing something in that understanding that unfortunately the body is a limited vessel and gets older and it just has its limitations. And I don't have a perfect answer or reason to make that better. Um, And not having a diagnosis for someone of why they're in pain and fatigue, I think is also really frustrating. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really hard because I'm like, they're like, it's not just age. And I go, it's probably multiple things, right? It's probably a little bit of hormonal change, maybe a little bit of early onset osteoarthritis, different stress having going on, maybe something else recently happened or a recent infection. So it's probably multifactorial. It's probably all of the things at once together. Mm 
-hmm. And it's really hard to isolate one thing for a diagnosis and then give a medicine, right? I don't have a necessarily a Band-Aid that is the best way to do this. And I think when you treat your patients with menopause too, it's not just a patch often sometimes about how to do it. Maybe they need diet changes, right? Maybe they've developed some food sensitivities and it's just what they used to eat at 30 and 40 is not the same what they can eat at 60. Um, or their sleep is not the same as what they need at 60 as what they needed at 30. And, and just life is different. And how to fix that, I think, for you and I is a perfect example of as very ambitious, driven, busy women with small children, career, like, you know, significant others, balancing everything. It's like, how do you fix that in as to adjust your lifestyle now with yeah. everything else going on? And that's hard. It's yeah. really hard. I know. Especially I think women like patterns, maybe not always, but in particular, and when they can't do their particular thing, whether it's like artwork or it's their certain exercise regimen or it's running, a lot of times it's running and I get that. You can't that. run anymore. You can't right? run and anymore. So, it's so frustrating. It, um, su- it sucks. Let's really just be honest. It totally sucks <laughs> to have to say that I can't do the exercises that made me the happiest or was my self-care. That was my 30 minutes of self-care. Now you're telling me I can't do that? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to fill that? That is hard mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then I'm sure too, on top of like, a, you don't have this disease either. You came here and I'm just telling you, you've got run of the mill sort of, you know, joint aches and pains. I'm sure on your end that can be, and the patient's end that could always, that's always a tough conversation. I, you know, and I feel you know, and I have my good days and bad days. I think there are, I'm sure there are days that I'm a much better communicator and empathetic and it's coming across. I'm always empathetic. It's just a question of, is it being received that way? Um, and there are probably things I can still learn how to have this conversation and do it better. But yeah, no, it's hard because, you know, as the, you don't want to give a patient a medicine that you believe is going to cause more harm, right? That's some right. of the Hippocratic Oath. We believe right. in to do no harm, right? That's our biggest thing that we try and do. Um, and someone looking at you and begging for help, but knowing that this is not the right answer and you don't have another answer, right? You don't have another medicine and it's a lot of trial and error. Maybe we can try this and maybe a combination of this or this life stage here. You know, that is not a very concrete answer. And I can imagine, I know I would be frustrated and, it, and it's hard. And so, you know, my goals in those conversations are sometimes it's multiple conversations and sometimes it's multiple trial and errors, but I try and be the most honest and transparent that I'm not trying to dismiss anyone's concerns. Let's try and figure out how to treat this. Um, And sometimes I'm wrong, right? Sometimes a a patient evolves and that's the unique thing about medicine and our privilege is that it flows and something that appears not autoimmune related all of a sudden flourishes into something else. And you're like, "Huh, huh, maybe we need to take a different direction. And I, that has happened multiple times. I've seen patients that I thought were rheumatoid arthritis which turn into a disease more like Bichette's. And it just, the reason it matters, it just changes which drugs to give them to me most benefit. And was I wrong to say that they had rheumatoid arthritis the first time? No, because that was based on the evidence I had in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. it made sense now why they weren't getting treated the way that they should have, right, in that sense. I think that's helpful for a patient perspective too, is that there are seasons, things ebb and flow, data comes up as, as things change, and that diagnoses can change, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean somebody was wrong or, it, it, again, it's just more time has evolved and you've been with the same doctor. And, and that's a really important, I think, recognition from, on both sides. Right. I can only imagine in, in 
helping patients through perimenopause and menopausal too, it may flow and change what their symptoms are, right? Acutely, they may start off here and then they go, well, that's not my symptom anymore. Now I want to treat this, depending on what's happening. And so it kind of changes and it's hard, right? So if you're dealing with hormones too, do you just change a whole new patch? Like to give them a whole new pill, right? Again, kind of similar, but you know, hormones aren't without side effects, right? And some of them every day, nausea, vomiting, or eating issues that can be associated with sometimes hormone replacement is, you know, a pretty common thing or an allergic reaction if it's a patch. Like, how do you navigate that? You know, and I find one of the most challenging things for patients is when they want to switch medications because they are doing better than they were when they first saw me, but they're not quite at what we call remission or as best that I feel like we can get them. We still feel like there's some underlying inflammation going on, but the fear of changing because that new medicine may not work or that new patch or that new hormone or a pill that you're going to give them is not going to allow them to sleep at night mm-hmm. can be overwhelmingly, um, right? So when you feel terrible, and I think we've, we've been sick before, when you feel terrible, you know, asking for medicine to feel better, it's almost, it's easier, right? You just want to feel better, make it better. Any better is better than no better. But when you feel okay, but maybe not great, but maybe good, but not great, what risk are you going to do to feel great if you could go back to not feeling good and feeling not good? So, right, like good is always better than not good, but how do you do that? And I always find that a challenge too, because if patients look at me, they're like, well, should I change? And I was like, you know, like, I want to be like, I don't know how to answer that for you because I'm not you. I don't take the pill. I don't do the shot. Yeah. And I'm not you when I flare and I want you to be most functional. I believe you're not quite there yet, but I recognize there's a risk to change. Yeah. And what happens if the medicine doesn't work at all and you feel hundred percent worse, thousand percent, I'm going to feel terrible. I recognize <laughs> that I couldn't have predicted that and I don't know. And we have other drug choice, but I can't get that month back right for you. And so those choices are really hard to make. And, you know, I would tell the listeners on this, this is where you really have that conversation with your doctor and, it has to be a kind of a pro con way and maybe you make a list and maybe not that time, or maybe you have an upcoming wedding or an event or none of us are going to weddings now. So upcoming something zoom wedding <laughs> that um, you, you don't, to, I know you want to feel good for, so it's not the right time to change right now, but maybe in another month. And so you can plan those things and have those conversations or table a conversation for that meeting. Yeah. So. I think that women maybe to have this, um, you know, we, we can be very stoic and especially as for caregiving for other people. And so our needs can certainly fall down the list. So if we feel okay, and that's better than bad, then we can kind of learn how to adapt to that. And I think there is a risk in sort of saying like, okay, I feel, you know, a five out of 10. So this is good. Um, whereas sometimes, uh, you know, there, there is opportunities to get to that seven out of 10 or that eight out of 10, but it can be scary to make the change. And so I always tell people, if you're having like more bad days than good days, or if like, you know, it's just, it is, it's a shared decision. Yeah, it's like, it's like this weighted decision yeah. of you have to buy into it too, right? Because, right, because let's really be honest, um, we're not taking the medicine, right? right. We're giving advice. And so right. I recognize that a million percent. And so, you know, I would like, I want you as the patient to buy into whatever you're going to be taking. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever it is going to be to want to do it too. Right. And so that, that is important. Now the caveat is, could we, you know, for whatever reason, the medicine doesn't work for whatever reason. Yes. Which means their five goes to a two and that sucks. 
right? There's no better way to say that that doesn't suck, but you know, that's where that communication goes. And if that open dialogue is open going like, this is not working. All right. So then we can make a quick. So the idea is to minimize that, to make a quick switch, to be able to get you to an eight. Um, but unfortunately in rheumatoid arthritis as a, as a perfect example, right? We have like 30 different drugs and wow. it's really hard to figure out which one is the right one for someone. We don't have that ability yet. So sometimes it really is a lot of trial, trial and error, which sucks. And I get that. And it's so hard to communicate how much I understand. Cause again, it's not me. It's not my life. I'm not the one functioning, trying to hold a coffee cup in the morning or the new baby at night or be a caregiver to someone else or whatever that is that I'm trying to paint to whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And knowing that the medicine is not working and my doctor is, is failing right now because it's not right. And, you know, and it's hard because, you know, we take that, I think, as very personal failures, despite we know that it, we're doing the best, but it, it's hard. Uh, the modern medicine and the evidence we have is only so great. Um, and so those are, I think, where it's really important that that trust and that dialogue is there with that physician, because I think that my hope is that seems less terrible for my patients. And that's why they keep coming back to me. It's <laughs> my hope that I'm trying and they see that I'm trying to find the right medicines and they see that the evidence is there behind the answers that I'm giving them. Because when they do feel well, you know, they feel great. And I totally get not rocking the boat and those kind of things. So. Yeah. Well, I think you're very authentic and I think patients appreciate when we can be authentic as opposed to stoic or, um, you know, a good bedside manner, I guess is the old way to say it. But I think just being more authentic and, and, and being empathetic and understanding it is the best as we can, even though we're not going through it at the time. So um, I want to ask you, switch gears a teeny bit, because um, I'm sure one of the things you deal with a lot and you see is fatigue. What are some of your, what are Dr. Mira's tips on combating Ooh. fatigue? I know this is a big one because who doesn't Ooh. have fatigue? Um, and whether it's more serious on the spectrum, like it, it goes along with rheumatology, a rheumatologic disorder or a medication you're taking for it, or it's just plain old fatigue. What are your tips for that? So I think fatigue is really hard. And in the, rheumatolo in, the, in the rheumatology data, it is clear that fatigue and tiredness are two different things. It has been documented as well described. Um, in terms of clinical, clinical research, like FDA drugs for fatigue, it, so how we get a drug approved is you have to have stable outcomes, right? For diabetes, it makes sense. It brings the A1C, you have clear measurements, you can follow the sugars. And so therefore we know clinical efficacy gets getting done and then we can assess safety. The problem with fatigue is what is our outcome? What are we measuring? Mm -hmm. So this makes it really hard to make clinical trials and to have drugs for fatigue. Uh, because if you talk to a, a lot of people, their fatigue is defined in many different things. Is it functionality? Is it life participation? Is it work participation? Is it disease activity, right? And so it's really hard to measure fatigue. So um, I think often it feels, since we don't have dedicated drugs, it feels like the, more, the world of medicine does not care about fatigue. Um, and I, I would a thousand percent disagree with it. It's just, we don't know how to define it. So it becomes very personalized to that particular physician and how they deal with it. And the data is becoming bigger and bigger around fatigue and we're trying to get better and better and define fatigue, but it's not there yet. Um, so often, you know, whether you have a rheumatologic disease, so you can have rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, vasculitis, I can ensure that your disease is in perfect control, you're on the right meds, yet you're still fatigued. 
right? There's no inflammation, no whatever, but you're still fatigued. Mm -hmm. I can have patients that just come in and are just fatigued and have joint pain, right? And so I think like with you and fatigue and menopause as we're getting older, I think it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. I think there is a subset of organic and that's a doctor word in the sense of a disease-related fatigue, whether it's thyroid disease, whether it's a diabetes disease, whether it's a narcolepsy disease, a sleep disorder, a rheumatoid arthritis, there's an organic component. I think with fatigue, um, I think there's also kind of in the mind, uh, a, I think there's a kind of like what I kind of call this like psychosocial, like your world outside of the organic mechanisms, like what's happening in your life, your mental mm-hmm. stability, right? What's not just stability, like <clears throat> anxiety, depression, sleep. Now you may not be depressed, but maybe you're just not in a, in a great, a perfect place right now. Things have just been a little bit more stressful. Um, right. So there's a component of life that adds mm-hmm. to fatigue. There's a component, I think, of diet and food sensitivities and changing the way we eat and fatigue, alcohol, substances, you know, medical marijuana, CBDs, all of what we put in our body, whether it's whatnot, I think is fatigue. I'm not saying any of them are bad or any of them are good. I'm just, I think they contribute. I think the amount that we exercise contributes to fatigue. So I, I think it's like, there are multiple components that add to fatigue. And I think that's why Uh, I think often physicians just kind of shut it down and they don't know how to fix it because we don't have an answer. And so if I can't fix it, if I can't give you a drug, it's not hypertension. And I think sometimes some physicians, it's just hard to- Defeating. It's defeating, right? I can't can't help you. So we're just not going to deal with it. (laughs) Whereas I think sometimes that's interpreted by patients of I'm being dismissed. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I think the majority of doctors never actually wanted to miss this, but they don't know how to fix it. And that conversations are hard. And unfortunately, right? I'm not a diet expert, right? I can talk about food sensitivities because I'm a rheumatologist and that always comes up with diet and rheumatology, but I'm not an expert, right? And um, classically, you know, our dietitians in the hospital really focused on hypertension, you know, for high blood pressure, sodium and sugars, but they don't really talk about you and your person and maybe the way you eat food and maybe what would be best for you. Mm-hmm. And women and men are different. And depending on your body you know, shape and where you are in your menopause or hormones, that could change. And so again, you know, if you're a 50, 55-year-old woman coming to sit in my office and you have more joint pain and fatigue, and I look at you and you're like, you're, I already eat kale salads and I try and work out. You know, the question is, you know, when I bring up diet, you know, it's more of like, well, is that the right diet? Just because that, right? Like just because that seems healthy, but maybe that's not right for you. Or just because it came from whole foods doesn't mean. It's right for you. <laughs> right. I, I never I try know. and be judgmental. And I struggle too, right? Let's really be honest. I think right. having kids, post body, all of the image in America, what, you know, right? I am equally. Equal equally offender. Fall, equally offended. Right? Fall into that, <laughs> to that issue. Um, and I, it's really hard to find an outlet, you know? So I think there are, um, I have a really good friend um, who I think would be actually amazing for this podcast, who I put you together with, um, right. named Ashley, Ashley Koff. She is a, she runs a program called the Better Nutrition Program, where she helps actually providers assess nutrition. But what she spent kind of her life doing is assessing this personalized medicine and this idea of diet that fatigue and pain and different things. And, and often that has to be done outside of the physician's office in a dietitian's office that is kind of more specialized in this idea of functional medicine, which is often not covered by insurance. So then there definitely becomes this have, have not um, yeah. different things, which, you know, is, is frustrating for us. Cause I think those are best 
serve for everyone. And we're just not there yet in modern medicine to get them to, to have that all there because um, of all the needs of everything else going on. Um, but I think it's getting there. I think this idea of these other aspects to get paid for and have insurance cover, I think is getting better in, yeah. with time uh, of going through. But I think it's hard because it's a big conversation about, again, what you did at 40 and 30 and what you're doing now at 60s. I think we have to reevaluate everything. And the yeah. problem is there, I don't have a right answer and we have to look at everything. Yeah. And it's like, and then how do you do that? So do you do elimination diet? Do you just give up things, right? Or, you know, do you just go gluten-free? Everyone's, you know, is that the answer? And I, I don't know. For some people, it may be. For some people, it's definitely not. Um, is it changing the way you exercise? Is it changing your sleep ha- you know, patterns? Is it figuring out, you know, that mind-body connection and what that means for you? Uh, you know, I think, I think that is classic. You know, there was a, um, someone sent me this Facebook meme and it was like, women and self-care and it was like you clearly need help and but right but they're not helping you as you're holding a child or vacuuming or making dinner and doing your work and they're like you do so well you clearly need some help and just staring at you and I think that I think there are moments that we feel that then you're like thanks I'm glad I need help now help me and it's also hard because you don't even know what you need the help with and I think that's where fatigue is overwhelming because you don't even know where to start to fix the fatigue and yeah. us physicians don't even know where to start to fix the fatigue. So where do you go with a patient? I think it starts so much longer than, uh, or so much, so much earlier than when you sort of start to have the actual like I need help, and and by then we've accumulated all these habits that may not be helpful, but they've helped us survive in the Correct. sense that they've gotten our kids through college and they've gotten our parents meals on the table every day. But what that might do to us, particularly for women. And again, I, I certainly not saying men don't aren't fatigued. I just don't see men. And so, but you know, from from the <laughs> psychology of women, I think it, it is it's multifactorial. And you're and you're absolutely right. There's so many components to it. As much as you think, you know, talking about diet, I think sleep. I think our sleep becomes such garbage, especially at menopause, as our children are growing, as things in the house are moving. You know, it's just such another reason. I think is the sleep we undervalue and underestimate its importance. I agree. Well, we talked about so much. We covered a ton in this like half an hour. So we talked a lot about rheumatologic conditions, distinguishing osteoarthritis from rheumatoid arthritis, how to do that. What does it feel like? What's the history? Kind of hoping our, list, hoping our listeners maybe gauge some of those big differences. Why labs are maybe not so important. Um, thinking about the risks of treatment, how to change treatment, and then just a touch on fatigue, which is such a big, big topic that's a whole topic and whole topic you need a panel you should have like a sleep doctor (laughs) and talk to dietitian together and have like patients ask questions because i think that we're all at a loss for fatigue and i think that's the most frustrating for everyone involved and you know again i think it's really where it comes to the discussion to be able to be like okay what is a modifiable thing that you can do and that is actually actionable because right we all say well fine i'm just going to eliminate gluten from your diet that's really hard to do so starting smaller and having actionable things that you can do yourself. Like if you don't exercise at all, you start with five minutes a day and you walk outside to see, you know, help fatigue. And in the beginning, it's not going to help. These are the kind of, unfortunately, for things like fatigue, those changes, 
accumulate over time and you're not going to see something in a week. You actually may, if you've never exercised before, you actually may be more sore and more fatigued. And then you're just, and I get it. And then you're like, you know what? That I hate that doctor. <laughs> everything hurts. Totally agree. Um, and so I think it's setting up the right expectations and also realistic expectations that people can meet, right? Like, I think that's the best discussions to have of being, and being honest with yourself about what you can and cannot do, right? If you eat fast food out three days a week already, going, stop eating fast food, that may not be feasible. Maybe you're, the way you drive and you commute or whatever is happening, that's not feasible for you. So going, all right, why don't we just cut it out once, you know, one less a week, right? And you start slow. And I think creating the better expectations in our mind that are more meetable and then meet them, it's then it almost- I think that's called you and smart- empowers you. Yes, aren't those oh, called go smart goals? Smart Maybe, goals. Maybe, I don't know. I like them. I'll, we can call it that. I think I, that's how I teach medical Specific, students. Specific, reasonable, <laughs> timely, something like smart goals. But we yeah. follow our own advice there? No way. I know. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your time so much. I know um, this has been a really fun episode. I haven't done one with a rheumatologist or on rheumatology before, so I really appreciate I'm happy to you answer any question your patients have. Jumping in. Yeah. Um, I will put links to where you can find Alexa, Mira, and her social media and where she is in Columbus down below at the bottom of this episode. And so you can check her out there and all the things that she is up to. She is a busy, what we call a trifecta. She does clinical, <laughs> she does research, and she does education. And um, I aspire to be able to have that trifecta as well. I think educating our our next generation on how to talk to patients is the most important. It's not really how to diagnose, it's how to talk your patients through it. And I think that that's what we have really just jabbered about for the last half an hour or so. Agree. And um, thank you. And Heather, don't sell yourself short. I'm pretty sure you're pretty fantastic. Doing a lot of stuff, so. <laughs> well, well, thanks. All right. Um, well, thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you love this episode, please leave us a comment or leave a review on iTunes and send any of your comments or questions to me over on Instagram. We'll see if we can answer some of those for you and let us know what else you'd like to hear in the future. All right. Bye everyone.